Well, we come to Mark 12, and I will admit I'm a little bit excited. I saw this kind of joke this morning. Uh, coffee, coffee first reached Europe in 1515. Is it any coincidence then that Martin Luther sparked the Reformation in 1517? <laughs> Beware a caffeinated pastor. And I mean, honestly, I, I was telling some guys yesterday, this is one of those sermons that's really, really easy to preach, okay? Be about the kingdom of God, serve the kingdom of man as well as you can, live at peace with everybody. Yes, pay your taxes, engage the system as you're able, and everything belongs to God. We're done. Thank you. Sandy, no. It's easy, but it is super complex. And as I was thinking about it this week and, you know, listening to a few other preachers and commentaries, got to think, you know, is this a political sermon as the, uh, as the old midterms loom? Is this a political sermon this morning? Are we going to talk about Caesar and Rome and taxes? And, and then I got to thinking, yeah, it is, actually. Thanks for asking. And by the way, they all are. Every time the Holy Spirit works through the Word of God, through humble and feeble people like myself and John and, and others, everything this, every time the Spirit works through the Word, as it is proclaimed, they are all political sermons. Because Jesus has people in every tribe and tongue and language, in every country in the world. And the great scandal of the kingdom of God, as it was to the Roman emperor, emperors, is that a new king and his kingdom are breaking in. A new city, a new reality, a new garden, a new polis that is universal. It can go into every language and tribe and culture and redeem what is good and convict what is sin. And in that sense, yes, every sermon, including this one, is a political sermon because the king is here in his word and he doesn't want to just get to our, our ballots and our books and our pocketbooks. He wants to get to our hearts. And so I think perhaps a good way to begin is with that wonderful Quote from St. Augustine. You made us for yourself, he says in his confessions. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Let me read it again. You made us for yourself, O Lord. And truly our hearts are restless until they rest in you. We already know that no amount of stuff no amount of the appeasing of Caesar, none of that is enough to truly bring rest to our souls, especially when real suffering comes. We were made for God, and we only find rest as we rest in his son, Jesus Christ. So let's jump into the text here, a couple different angles, but let's start with this unholy alliance. A strange delegation, indeed, is sent to trap and implicate Jesus, who they see as nothing but a pseudo-rabbi and a rebel rouser. He is a blue-collar dude from northern New Mexico. He did not go to Harvard or seminary. What is he doing coming into Jerusalem, cleansing the temple, riding the donkey, proclaiming that he is the king? For context, we heard last week about the, the parable of the workers in the vineyard, which is a, is a challenging parable if you're on the side of the workers, the implication here for the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious council, is that everybody who listened to Jesus last week, the religious leaders, they get it. Uh-oh, 
He's talking about us. <laughs> We're the workers in the vineyard. We're the ones who have been unjust to the son. And so now in Mark's gospel, we're going to have three stories, which are basically three attempts to trap Jesus, wherein Jesus responds robustly with sort of these four major ways that a rabbi would respond to the questions they're asking. We're told that these folks are sent by the Sanhedrin. At that time, a council of 71 scribes, leaders, and elders from the various sects of Judaism, and they are together to make sure that God's law is administered properly in God's temple because that is where God has planned and promised to be with his presence. So they send, oddly, Pharisees and Herodians. This is weird. Okay, if we lived in those days, we would know this is weird. The Pharisees are, a, as you know, a very strict religious sect. They are very, uh, very deeply involved in the proper explanation, interpretation, and administration of Torah, God's holy word and law. They are, as it were, uh, separatists from Rome. Uh, they see Rome as God's judgment on Israel. They view Rome as a new exile. They see that people have been impure. They're not holy. They're not following God's way, and thus Rome. Now, that's very different than the Herodians. The Herodians, who were also Jews and leaders, had circled themselves up with the Herods. Now, the Herods are basically puppet kings. They've been ruling for a few generations. We've already discussed them before in Mark. Uh, the Herodians do not come from a Jewish lineage, and they're sort of, you know, trying to get theirs and get their power. And, you know, if you've seen Herod's palace and some of those things in ancient Israel, or, or you've read about it, you know that they had sort of positioned themselves in between the Jews and the Romans, and they were not very well loved by the Jews, they would have been seen, as it were, as tax collectors, in a sense. So what are these two people doing together? Well, apparently Jesus is enough of a big deal, and his potential rebellion is enough of a big deal, uh, that it's kind of like the Scottish in the days of Braveheart. They got different colored tartan, they got different, you know, they can't agree on anything in the Scottish, Scottish clans except for one thing, kill the English. That's the only thing they can agree on. That's sort of how it is with the Pharisees and Herodians. There would no, there's no way these two would form an alliance except for this one reason. Jesus and what he has said is, is that serious for the Jewish religious uh, industrial complex. Now, their motives are laid clear. They come to Jesus with all this flattery, uh, but really they want to trap him. And the Greek word for, for trap there is more than just, you know, let's get him in a, in a tongue twister. They want to do violence against Jesus. And so their hypocrisy is exposed. They are about protecting their system and their understanding of who God is and what God can do and how God is going to bring his Messiah, the Savior. I think in this way, the text sort of unfolds us to our own, to our own need for his grace. Right, Because you might be a pretty good person who's pretty nice most of the time. And yet so often when we feel our power threatened, we are really in our hearts no different than the Sanhedrin sending the Pharisees and the Herodians. We are those who try to trap. Uh, we are those who have expectations that when God doesn't fulfill them, we are upset. We are those who, when suffering and pain and brokenness comes into our life, go why and question if God loves us or maybe if he's even real. 
We, we are the ones who oftentimes want to elevate our political persuasions to the realm of being at least co-equal with God's kingdom. We are the ones who like these folks, because this is really their big problem, have a tiny, myopic, small view of the kingdom. They are thinking brick-and-mortar temples. They are thinking robes and fancy hats. They are thinking right here, right now. They're thinking Jewish nationalism and ethnicity, and they have a small view of the promises and the power of God to save. It's us. How often have we found ourselves like these guys, one foot in the world and one foot with God, trying to, as it were, trying to trap God in our demands, in our expectations. Uh, Tim Keller put it this way, when it comes to man's power and desire to build the kingdom of man, indeed, when it comes to man's desire to bargain with God in the building of that kingdom, the power of man is merely a rearranging of the furniture. We may not like how another group does it, and so we do it differently. But at the end of the day, it is, without God's help, a pursuit of power and self-protection. I think he's right. So we shouldn't just look at the unholy alliance of the Pharisees and the Herodians and tisk tisk shame and beat them up, but we should ask the question, as Mark is fond of begging the question and getting us to ask the question, how is that in us? Where are there the seeds of that sort of trapping and hypocrisy, false expectations, and tiny kingdoms in our own lives? So they come to Jesus with a trap. Is it lawful? Is it according to Torah to pay the tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay it? And of course, this isn't a mere civic question for the Jews. It's a question of worship and therefore has deep moral implications for the Jews as far as how they are called to live in light of the love of God and worship God. First of all, what's the tax? I think this is a good thing to consider. Uh, it's, it's the tribute tax, okay? There was a variety of taxes. There were taxes and tariffs on goods. There were various other taxes in the Roman Empire. But one thing that Rome did to achieve the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, was they instituted on all conquered peoples a tribute tax. It was required to be given every year, and every person, man, woman, and child, had to pay the tax. This was, for the Jews, a yearly reminder of the oppression of Rome. Every time you had to pay that tax, which, by the way, wasn't much. One denarius is one day's wage. That's not nothing, but it wasn't like some incredible, burdensome, unpayable tax. I mean, wouldn't you like the tribute tax to our government to be one day's wage? Right? We pay a bit more than that in tribute every year. No, it wasn't, the, it wasn't the, the quantity of the tax. It was the significance of the quality of the tax. The quantity was, was doable by basically a, a, any Jew under Roman occupation. But what it signified was, you're ours. We own you. Say what you want. Do your Jewish thing. Build your temple. We'll do what you want to do to keep the peace. And if you dare think about revolting again, we will crush you with a heavy hand. But, but every time they had to pay that tax, it was just a reminder of Rome's overlordship and the fact that they were still waiting on Messiah, still waiting for a savior, still in exile. And so they're attempting in this trap to get Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. He's claimed to be the Messiah. 
He's claimed to be the one to bring the kingdom of God, and they have a ton of expectations about what that means. So now as they attempt to trap him, they want to get him on the horns. If he says, yes, pay the tax, then the crowds are going to go, ah, he's no real kingdom. He's no real revolutionary. He's no real Messiah. But if he says, no, don't pay the tax, then he will be charged with sedition. And he could easily and quickly be killed. Of course, the third part of this is the question of whether or not it's lawful. What does Torah say? What is our obligation according to God's word when it comes to paying these sorts of taxes, especially for the Israelite theocracy? Because remember, they are theocratically a sovereign nation under Roman oppression, so they want to know. But there's a deeper meaning here, not just the horns of a dilemma. Yes, and the crowds will not like me. No, and Rome will kill me. And the deeper meaning digs into his, Israel's own history. Now, quoting from one commentator here, 25 years prior to Jesus, there was a man who came claiming to be bringing the kingdom of God. All right, so in years leading up to Jesus, there had been those who had, who had sort of claimed to either be the Messiah or be the one before the Messiah, like John the Baptist. His name was Judas the Galilean. Judas the Galilean, 25 years before Jesus, led a revolution, a rebellion in Jerusalem over the issue of taxes. Now do you see what they're doing? You see the deeper meaning of what they're getting at here? He said, don't pay those taxes. You know what else he did? He cleansed the temple. You know what else he did? He said, God will be king. You know what else he did? He taught against the religious system of the day. He was caught by the Romans. He was killed and nothing came of it. Perhaps this is why in the book of Acts, one of the leaders of the Sanhedrin says, look, if this thing's from God, there's nothing we can do to quell it. But if it's not from God, it'll go away. Because they had already lived through that several times. So when they come to Jesus with this question, it's more than just the horns of a simple dilemma between the crowd and Rome. They're asking Jesus, are you actually claiming to be the one who brings in the kingdom of God? Are you claiming to be a real revolutionary like Judas the Galilean? Again, no, no tax means there would be an armed revolt, which means Jesus would surely die. But if he says, yes, pay the tax, they're all going to go, he's not the king. This isn't the kingdom. Now he's full of fear. Power has won the day. He's just blowing smoke. He's not truly the Messiah. So that's what they're asking. Not really about taxes, but are you the one who's actually come to bring the kingdom of God? And are you willing to put your money where your mouth is and deal with the consequences between the people and Rome? That's the heart of the issue, the deeper meaning. Now, Jesus gives a brilliant answer. It really is. It really is an amazing answer. And I'd encourage you to read this story, read it a few times, and join with those folks at the end. We're told they marvel. He says, bring me the coin. Bring me the coin to look at it. Again, a denarius, a day's wage, and he says, whose image and inscription is on the coin? Well, whose image is on the coin? It's the image of the current emperor in those days, Tiberius Augustus, who was the son of Caesar Augustus. His image, his imago, his representation of his person and character and authority is on the coin. The Greek word here for image is actually icon. The icon of Caesar, his face, represents or re-demonstrates to the people, this is the one who has all the power in the empire. In fact, 
in those days, the emperor owned all the coins. So even if you had a coin, it was sort of like you were leasing that coin as you used it as an exchange of value in the marketplace. It's his image. And on the back, there were words. Listen to this. I won't read it in the Latin. The words say that he is Augustus Tiberius, the divine son. And he is the Pontifex Maximus, the high priest of all Rome. In these days, coins didn't merely have an image on them, but an implication, which was that as you used these coins under Roman oppression, you were forced to be a part of the cult of emperor worship, right? It's so hard for us to imagine this, but Tiberius isn't just saying, hey, I'm a good leader and I'm worth following. Thanks for voting me into office, by the way. Oh, and if you don't like me, you can vote me out. No, no, no. He's the divine son. He's the chosen one. All power and glory and honor goes to him. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And this is why it was such a problem for the Jews to use these coins. And yet Jesus, in this moment, in his answer, give to God what is God's and Caesar what is Caesar's, show me the coin, he truly does expose their hypocrisy, their hearts, and their true colors. You see, the Pharisees were willing to work with Rome because they saw Rome as God's judgment against unholy people like you who didn't keep the law very well. The Herodians were willing to do it for power. The Zealots weren't willing to do it, so they went out in the wilderness and sharpened their swords. The Essenes said, we don't like any of this, so we're just going to go be monks in the desert. But for the Pharisees and the Herodians, they were both, in a sense, using Rome. They weren't quite as pure and as spotless and as clean on the matter as they may have had us assume. And so Jesus gets to the real question here because he asks them, and it's easy to miss this, but actually this is sort of a climactic moment in the text. He asks them a simple question. Bring me a coin. Here's what that implies. First of all, it implies that Jesus doesn't have one. What kind of king is this? As Tim Keller puts it, he's a king without a quarter. What kind of king is this guy that he doesn't even have? I mean, he doesn't have a denarius on him, a day's wage. But perhaps more amazing than that and more exposing to their idols, their true idols. You know, if only we had the right politician in power, things would be better. Now, I know none of us have ever thought that. <laughs> you know, if only the right person was in power, I had the right stuff going on in my life. Now, of course, we should pursue, especially within our system, just leaders. I'm not saying not to be involved. Be involved. But be involved in such a way that, we, that you're, you're constantly reminding yourself of the gospel and that the kingdom is bigger than any one person, people, nation, empire. Who actually has a coin? And they bring him one. Now, he did this on purpose because it would have been blasphemous for, for a Jew to even look at or read one of these coins. Think about a Jew reading those words about this false god. This was breaking the second commandment. You shall have no graven images. You shall have no false gods. And yet Jesus traps the trappers. He's a genius. He traps the trappers. Because he's the king without a quarter, and they're actually the ones who have a coin. Demonstrating the full irony of their hypocrisy, they're already in the system. They're trying to trap him on the horns of the dilemma of the system, and they're already in it, for they possess the coin. And this gets to the real question, 
as it exposes their idols in their hearts. It gets to the real question. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So without answering the question, Jesus does imply what Paul makes explicit in Romans 13. We are, to the best of our ability, to be the best citizens we can be. Now again, in our system, that looks very different than it did in Rome. But Romans 13 is pretty clear that all the governing authorities are ordained by God, that God has ordained the government to wield the sword, that is to restrain evil and promote justice, and that Christians are to live at peace, and they are to honor uh, and submit to those authorities as given by God. Give to Caesar what it is, pay the tax. It's not law-breaking to do it. I think here, perhaps, just a word about biblical realism. We cannot become cynical about the world we live in. We cannot become cynical because God has, had us, has us in the world and not of it. But, but we also can't elevate it to the point of worship. We can't become cynical. We can't become idolatrous. We are to bless the city of man. We are to serve the city of God. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But again, Jesus' answer is deeper than that. He doesn't say to pay the tax or not. He implies it, but applies something even more. I mean, really, it's Caesar. It's, it's Augustus Tiberius. What does this guy deserve? What does any tyrant deserve? Nothing. So here's what Jesus is saying. You guys are worked up about small stuff. You're worked up about temples and bricks and mortar and systems and coins. And if you do that, if you keep your little eye on that tiny prize and navel-gazing, you will miss the kingdom of God that is even for people in Santa Fe 2,000 years later. You will miss the kingdom of God that is growing right now in India and China and South America and Africa in incredible ways. You'll be prone to watch the news and go, well, the sky is falling here, and totally miss the fact that God is on his throne and the advancement of his kingdom has never been pushed back an inch. Give Tiberius his coin back. Who cares? Give him back that trash. It's just a coin. It has no hold on you. You are free. You may think you're oppressed by Rome. You may think all your power and politicking is going to build the kingdom, but it's not. God knows exactly what he's doing, and he will provide for you. And then, of course, give to God what is God's. And this is the big switch in the text. This is the thing I think that really, you know, the, the exposing of their hearts is what silences them. But this is the piece that I believe causes them to marvel. They're trapped as trappers because they have the coin. And yet, what does Jesus say? Give to God what is God's. And what is God's? Well, the, the question there is where is God's image? Where is God's image? What is the currency of God's kingdom in the world? Where has God stamped his image? On you and on me. Genesis 1.27 says that man and woman are made in the very image of God. In God's beautiful and glorious kingdom economy, it is people who are stamped with his image, who have his image and value and character put on them. We are made for God. And so what is he saying to the Pharisees and the Herodians? Get your heads out of the sand and look at these people that God loves and wants to save. Stop looking at your tiny kingdom and open your eyes. God even has people among the Romans that he wants to bring into his kingdom. 
If God's image is on us, then all of us is for God. Perhaps, again, explaining Jesus' brilliant interpretation at another trap. What's, what's the full summary of the law? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Take this coin that you are and love God with everything you have because everything you have belongs to him. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love him and trust him. And of course, again, not trusting in our own works, not trusting in our own abilities. If, if the image of God on us does anything, it brings us to the end of ourself and our need for grace. This is what I mean when I talk about being the best citizens. Now, R.C. Sproul has a great quote here about Justin Martyr, Justin Martyr's second century, give or take, apologist. And he wrote an open letter to the leadership in Rome. They were so mad, they called the Christians atheists. They called the Christians atheists because they wouldn't worship the Greek pantheon. They wouldn't believe in their gods, and so they must be atheists. Justin Martyr writes this letter, and he says, Before you condemn the Christians, look at the Christians. Look at the Christians who live in your cities and under your rules, and yet are the most, and are the most blessed citizens around. They not only keep the laws as they are able, of course, if it goes against the law of God, then that's different, but they keep the laws as they are able, but they seek to not leave the city, but to stay and to make it the best and most beautiful place they can. What that means for us in 2022 in our system is, yes, affect change. Yes, be educated, right? We've heard the quote a thousand times from the founding father that if you're not educated, then our whole system collapses. True. You know, be activated, Pursue justice, engage our system, and be the best citizen you can be. We cannot see the culture out there as enemy. You know, we're in here, holy Christians, they're out there, enemy. We're behind the doors of our temple, they're bad. No, God wants to send us out into Santa Fe to be the most loving, serving, caring, best citizens we can be. Again, this begs the question in Mark's text, do you know whose you are? <laughs> Do you know whose you are and do you know why you belong to that person? Do you live that way? Do you believe that you're free? And of course, this brings us to the very end here. The unholy alliance, the trap, the brilliant answer, but, but the true and realist revolution is found for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because yes, you are made in God's image, but we have a problem. Our image is marred because of sin. Our first parents, Adam and, and Eve, they, they didn't keep God's law. They, they didn't do what they were told and let God show them what is good and evil. They ate of the tree. They were kicked out of the garden. And so we're all born not into just, you know, merely instances of doing sin, but we are born as sinners our, our image is marred. It's what uh, some scholars have called the noetic effects of sin. Sin affects not, not just, you know, the things we do, but what's deep in us. It's a nature, like fading coins. The, the, the faint image of Adam on us is both marred, and there's nothing we can do about it. We, in our own strength, cannot fix our own coin. So we become so often like the leaders, small-minded, politicking, nationalistic, missing the point of the bigger kingdom, and yet God is holy and he cannot wince at our sin. So what is God going to do when he has put his image on you, 
But because of the marring and the sin of our image, we can't be back into his holy presence. What is God going to do? Well, Colossians tells us. Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And Jesus, the true son, the perfect image, comes down from heaven, Philippians 2, doesn't consider equality a thing to be grasped, humbles himself, and gives up his life in our place. Jesus is the true image and the true son of God. Does he come to tax us? No, he comes to pay our debt. Does he come to oppress us? No, to set us free. Does he come for power? No, he's the king without a quarter who gives up his power so that even the most powerless know that they have a place in his throne room. To quote this scholar as we end, the gospel is that on the cross, Jesus took the poverty you deserve He was taxed with the full weight of our sin and God's justice so that we could have the incredible wealth of God's love and acceptance. More than a Caesar. Or to put the tax another way, Jesus as the payer. That under the curse of the law, Adam sinned. And like Adam, we all turn to our brides and say, punish her, not me. But Jesus, bearing our debt, points to his bride and says, Don't punish her. Punish me instead. Jesus paid it all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the good news of your word to us. And especially for, I don't know, just this this beautiful text that we get to see the gospel in. We get to see our need for the gospel and the Pharisees and the Herodians and everybody else with their small kingdom mentality and notions of power. We do the same, Lord. We know we do. And we get to see your love in in the answer, exposing us, but not to destroy us, exposing us so that we might be reminded of the dual truths that we are not only made in your image and owe all to you, but in our inability to fulfill that, you send your perfect son, your true image, to do the work for us of image bearing and image keeping so that we might be reconciled and brought back into your holy relationship and into knowing you perfectly. So, Father, as we come to the table, would you, would you remind us of that? Would you feed us with those promises? Would you feed our souls with that good news? We know you will, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.